Welcome to Audiograph. This is where we document the readings and conversations hosted by the New School Writing Program. My name is Luke Wiggett. I'm happy to bring you this next episode and really the last episode of this school year. And it's the second installment of what we're calling Audio Doctor. This is volume two. And Audio Doctor is a special presentation of New School faculty uh, brought to you in part by Dr. Doctor, which is a a Brooklyn-based reading series and podcast that I co-host with alum Sam Farmon. And yeah, Sam and I set up shop back in the winter. Everyone was complaining. It was very, very cold at, at the time. And Lori Lynn's office is especially cold if you've ever visited her there or, or worked with her. Um, so yeah, thanks, Lori Lynn, for uh, both letting us use your office and warning us that it was going to be cold. Anyway, this is the second part. Uh, there are There's going to be seven readers coming up here, and I'll kind of pop in from time to time to help you uh, navigate, know who you're listening to. Uh, but just quickly, we have uh, David Lehman and then Sarah Lipman, followed by Lori Lynn Turner, who I mentioned we used her office. Thanks again for that, Lori Lynn, and Gregory Collins. Both Lori Lynn and Greg uh, work in the office. They kind of keep things moving and... Um, you know, whether you go to the new school or you're thinking about it, um, it's incredible to have a place where when you call, you dial the phone number, someone actually picks up. And the whole time I was there, I would say maybe one or two rings and someone picks up and actually knows what's going on, cares about the program. That was super helpful. Um, I know that in my undergrad, I did not have that sort of treatment at, at my state school. Anyway, continuing on. Uh, Lori Lynn Turner and Gregory Collins are followed by Dale Peck, Sarah Weeks, and Hetty Jones uh, finishes things off with a great short story. So yeah, thanks so much for listening. And if you if you listen throughout this semester and last, I really appreciate it. Thanks to the New School for letting me do this another year here. Thanks to uh, Luis and Lori Lynn and just everyone in the office, uh, John Reed, who really helped to get this project off the ground uh, two years ago now. Uh, yeah, it's been cool. I feel uh, like it's, it's helped me stay connected to everyone. I've actually, since, since finishing the program and, and working on this, uh, moved to Nashville, Tennessee, um, which has been good, but I definitely miss a lot of you and a lot of the lit scene there. So it's been really nice to be able to stay connected this way. Um, yeah, you can find Dr. Doctor online at drdoctordrdoctor.com and on Twitter at drdoctordrdr. Of course, the new school is at newschoolwriting.org and on Twitter at newschoolwrites. Thanks for listening. First up is David Lehman. He reads some, some poems and he and I talk a little bit about sort of the voice of the people coming through the program. Um, which he, of course, has a great handle on. Thanks for listening. I'm David Lehman, and I'll be reading from my new and selected poems, which appeared in 2013 from Scribner. The first poem is called Radio. I left it on when I left the house for the pleasure of coming back Ten hours later, to the greatness of Teddy Wilson, after you've gone, on the piano, in the corner of the bedroom, as I enter in the dark.
This poem is called A History of Modern Poetry. The idea was to have a voice of your own, distinctive, sounding like nobody else. The result was that everybody sounded alike. The new idea was to get rid of ideas and substitute images, especially the image of a rock. So everyone wrote a poem with the image of a rock in it, capped with snow or unadorned. This was in the 1970s, a decade before pet rocks were a Christmas craze, showing that poetry was ahead of its time, as usual, and poetry had moved on. The new idea was to make language the subject because language was an interference pattern. There was no such thing as unmediated discourse, and the result was that everybody sounded alike. Desolation Row. The eccentric genius went crazy living by himself. Few things held his attention. Spy novels, baseball games on television, Japanese poetry, himself. The things that used to gladden him now seemed flat or stale. He felt like Wordsworth, gloomy on a sunny day. There was a dinner one night. Coleridge sat at one end of the table and Wordsworth on the other. Both were talking about poetry. Coleridge was talking excitedly about a Wordsworth poem. So was Wordsworth. It was no fun feeling like Wordsworth. He'd take Coleridge any day, lamenting the theft of his opiated genius by abstruse German philosophy. Deprivation is for me what daffodils were for Wordsworth, Philip Larkin quipped. But he knew better. There was only one thing that held his interest now, and that was pornography. This was after disillusion with the French Revolution had set in. He thought maybe here was a subject he could contemplate, disillusionment. Yes, that's what he would do. That would be his new project to ward off ennui. The Ides of March. The origin of every fortune is a crime. The Ides of March are a dangerous time. The ideas of March originate in wind. Madness may spring from a mind that hasn't sinned. The guides of March have scary stories to tell. The family money came from a corpse and an oil well. The editors of March fly to the moon and bring back April. The original sinner has learned to shave and say, I will. You can trace each legacy back to the day when the id of March exposed the ego's feet of clay. The dice of March roll on the green felt tabletop. The suicides of March drive past the octagonal sign. Stop. On the dais of March sit the deceased father and mother. Every happy family is different from every other. That's great. You have time for one more, or yeah, absolutely. And I, I oh, also, very good. I'll just kind of prime you with this. Maybe um, wondered if you might be able to speak to you know, um, sort of the voice of you know the poets that you're seeing coming through the program. You know, some of the people who will be listening to this, um, you know, are looking at the new school as a potential place to be, or um, or you know, we have alumni who also listen, and I'm just curious, like what what that voice is, like your take on sort of what it sounds like, or if how varied it is. 
Well, we've had a, a, a great number of really exciting, talented poets come through our program. And uh, many of them have a very distinctive voice that uh, 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 is peculiar to them alone. And uh, so, for example, one of our most talented poets is Matthew Yeager, another Danielle Pafunda, and uh, they don't have that much in common necessarily, but both are tremendous talents. Mark Bibbins and Kathy Ossip were in our very first mm. class, and they've been extremely successful. Uh, Stephanie Patrick and Pia Alaperti from the class of, I think, 2012 were exceptional. And, uh, but it's sort of unfair to single out a few because uh, there are dozens who yeah. are really exciting to read. I think humor is one thing that surfaces in a lot of the poems that I get to read. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the poets are comfortable writing in form, whether uh, the prose poem on one end or the sestina or the sonnet, haiku on the other. Uh, many of the poets are willing to experiment and uh, tried to reconcile a love of poetic tradition with a sense of the innovative. Uh, they respond to the poets uh, of the past as much as to the prominent figures of, of the day. And it's a great pleasure working with them and trying to get each poet to realize her or his potential and what is in that person in particular we want to bring out mm -hmm. rather than encouraging people to copy <laughs> us or right. to imitate their teachers. We want to find what their natural voice is, what they feel most comfortable writing about, what subject matter they already have, but also to find subject matter that they don't know they have. And so, for example, uh, we have them writing research poems, poems mm -hmm. that require... Uh, you know, looking into the past, uh, like what happened on your birthday in history? Or what happened yeah. in the year you were born? That happens to be a subject that we had uh, recently in one of my workshops. But another workshop, we had everyone write two-line poems, ten two-line poems that week. Mm -hmm. And the two-line poem itself is a form and an interesting one. And so we read a dozen examples of two-line poems, and then everyone wrote them. And that worked out really well. It's, it's interesting to hear you say that the, people are surprised by what they end up writing about. Two people just today who came in before you have both said, I didn't think I would write about these things, but, and I've been surprised. And that moment of being surprised, that, that's exciting, I think. And... Uh, Emerson said that you mount to paradise on the staircase of surprise. Surprise itself is a great element in poetry. That is, if you can surprise the reader with each line, if there's something in the next line that surprises the reader, and that pattern continues throughout the poem, you will have sustained the reader's attention. You'll have captured it and sustained it. And so that is uh, a great element, and it's good to hear that uh, people have been saying that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely a, a nimble group of people, like the people who I studied fiction here, but interacted with a lot of the poets, and yeah, the humor and, and just a, a lot of range, I guess, which is really exciting, I think. 
Well, why don't I read a prose poem since uh, <laughs> prose poems are very popular these days. Mm-hmm. And I edited an anthology of them called mm-hmm. Great American Prose Poems. And I noticed that a lot of people are writing prose poems. It's a, mm-hmm. a form that has really taken off. And this example is called Mother Died Today. Mother died today. That's how it began. Or maybe yesterday. I can't be sure. I gave the book to my mother in the hospital. She read the first sentence. Mother died today. She laughed and said, you sure know how to cheer me up. The telegram came. It said, mother dead. Stop. Funeral tomorrow. Stop. Mother read it in the hospital and laughed at her college boy son. Or maybe yesterday. I don't remember. Mama died yesterday. The telegram arrived a day too late. I had already left. Europe is going down. The euro is finished. And what does it matter? My mother served plum cake and I read the page aloud. Mother died today or yesterday and I can't be sure. And it doesn't matter. Germany can lose two world wars and still rule all of Europe. And does it matter whether you die at 30 or 70? Mother died today. It was Mother's Day the day she died, the year she died. In 1940, it was the day the Germans marched into Belgium and France, and Churchill succeeded Chamberlain as prime minister. The telegram came from the asylum, the home, the hospital, the assisted living facility, the hospice, the clinic. Your mother passed away. Heartfelt condolences. The price of rice is going up, and what does it matter? I'll tell you what I told the nurse and anyone who asks. Mother died today, May 10, 2012. Well, thank you so much for uh, being willing to, to share some work with us. And How about one short oh, love course. poem? Oh, of course. We would love that. Yeah. This one's for my wife. I write her a, a poem every year on Valentine's Day. <laughs> and uh, sometimes... Yes, it is, it is, and it's a challenge and a, uh, a pleasure. Uh, one year I wrote a, a lengthy prose poem called Why I Love You, about the pronoun you. And last year I wrote Yours the Moon. Yours the Moon, mine the Milky Way, a scarf around my neck. I love you as the night loves the moon's dark side, as the sky, distant, endless, Wears her necklace of stars over her dress, under my scarf, that she wears against the cold. Tomorrowland. We have come to Disney World to celebrate my daughter's third birthday. Violet chews her princess vitamins in the parking lot, smooths her iridescent bodice. She holds herself out like a cake topping. My husband sprang that ball gown on her in the hotel this morning. Hot dog, she'd squealed and wiggled her way through layers of tulle, sliding into plastic feather heels. I shoved a pair of her sneakers into my bag. Already the sun is beating off the asphalt. My husband crouches and she boards his shoulders, straddling him. It is Easter week, but Disney handles the masses with remarkable efficiency. There is a tram, a monorail, a steady clip through cattle gates. I would have killed to sleep in, but my husband said it was important to see the look on her face as if the magic kingdom were opening just for her. 
She is an only child, and he is right. This sure is something. Niceness abounds. An employee in yellow stripes pins violet with a first-timer button. The weight of it pulls the strap of her dress off her shoulder. This is my first time, too. I once visited its shabby California cousin, but can't remember past the Incredible Hulk grabbing my waist and spinning me overhead until I felt only the swell of the crowd waving autograph books and my father's camcorder immortalizing the scene, throw up included. We follow the parade down Main Street. Through the sound system, Mickey Mouse promises that dreams come true. Children trip alongside their families in mermaid fins, snow-white collars, fairy costumes. My husband whistled at Violet twirling on the dull carpet of our room this morning, fast as a merry-go-round until she crashed into the edge of the TV. Alice and the White Rabbit lip-sync a very merry unbirthday as they glide by on their float. Fireworks erupt from the parapets of Cinderella's castle. Violet claps like a wind-up toy. At Betsy Ray's sleepover in the second grade, we played truth or dare. I could hardly believe I'd been invited to her party until Betsy thrust a sharpened pencil at my chin and double-dogged me to shove it. You know where. I begged for truth, but Betsy said it was her call, her birthday, her dare. The pencil had pink and purple hearts stamped all over it. My sleeping bag was covered in dwarfs, but it was just girls, so I did what I was told until I emerged from the dark, good and scratched. In Toontown, Violet tries to fit her mouth around a jumbo lollipop while waiting on a hug from Tinkerbell. The nymph sprinkles her with a pollen of pixie dust, leaves a melt of foundation on her arm. Violet glows beneath these teenage wings. My husband snaps their picture. When Mark Pith kissed me in junior high, I didn't brush my teeth for a week, even though we'd been shut in a closet at random and his jaw hung loose from wine coolers as if it had been shot up with Novocaine. A kiss is a kiss is a kiss. Who am I to deny the kindness of strangers? From there... We ride the jungle cruise. The animals are fake, yet it remains a big draw of adventure land. That and the turkey legs, which are thick as clubs, but 100% real. You should see how America eats them. In the swamp heat, I feel almost skinny. My husband picks up a stuffed giraffe for my daughter as a souvenir. Call it luck until I planted that hissing plate of fajitas, hot, very hot, before him at Mary's Cantina, I never thought anyone could see pregnant skin as potential. Most of the time, we stay in fantasy land. There's Dumbo, Peter Pan. The guests in line for a small world are so pink from the sun they look like they'd been slapped. We share the boat with twin pirates. Violet plugs a thumb in her mouth and folds into me. The song plays. The ethnic puppets are in need of an update. The thing is, I dream of prostitution.
From there, it's over to the castle for cake. Violet bangs her heels into my husband's chest, squeezes him with her thighs. My husband is all smiles and sweat. The reservation didn't come cheap, but he has promised to love my daughter as if she were his own. Below the flying buttresses, banquets of girls squirm in wilted sateen. There's lipstick in their teeth, tiaras in their hair. Some wear extensions of glittery curls. Violet ogles them. My husband cups her eyes as hired characters present the decorated sheet cake. Blow, princess, he says, opening his hands. Sometimes I get that slut feeling with my husband. He works and I stay home, which makes it a fair trade, although I never imagined it like this. After my parents' divorce, my mother warned me not to count on a man, but that's because she never found one worth counting. It's his name on the electric. Still, I get tired of being the DVR. Last week, afterward, he flicked my ass and asked for popcorn. When I returned with a buttery bowl, he was watching a show on volcanoes. My husband leads Violet down the grand curved staircase as if it's her wedding day. At the door of the bibbidi-boppidi boutique, a fairy godmother pops out to whisk my daughter away. There is an extensive priced menu of services. Anything you want, he says. Sky's the limit. Violet calls my husband the best. I know how she feels. The other night he came up behind me while I was flossing my teeth. I leaned over the sink to spit the blood from my inflamed gums, and he prodded. That is love. I thought he would love right through me. Of course, it pays to be flattered. How may I grant your wish? The fairy godmother chirps as she pumps up Violet in her salon chair. During her makeover, my husband jaunts off to Tomorrowland for a quick thrill on Space Mountain. He knows indoor roller coasters would make me hurl, so I stay beside Violet, and together we stare into that mirror and wait. Enthusiasm is contagious. I worry my daughter will meet a nice man. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm, of course, sitting, sitting across the table from Sarah Lippman. Uh, she was reading from a collection, Doll Palace. Uh, and what was the title of that story again? Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland. I love the, uh, the bookended images of the not brushing the teeth and then the flossing, because I always have trouble flossing. <laughs> Are you, are you a regular flosser? My regular flosser. Yeah. Not religious flosser. Okay. But I try to be. Off and I try on? to keep up on the dental hygiene, yes. Okay, that's great. And you have that winning smile. <laughs> uh, so it's funny, I, most of the uh, interviews I did today were with people who are just out of the new school program, but uh, off the record, you said when you graduated, but on the record, we'll say that you've been out for a couple of years uh, what, what kind of like lasting effects were there, are there any like lingering, you know, connections you made or like how, how has it been at this stage in your writing career? 
Well, I'd say the lasting connections have been uh, the people that I met in the program. I hooked up in the last five years, I hooked up with Nita Novino, who actually was in the nonfiction discipline, but she had started the Sunday Salon reading series back when we graduated mm-hmm. in 2002. And um, On the record. <laughs> there you go. That's how old I am. Um, and uh, so I, I hooked up with her and I've been co-hosting her reading series for about the last five years. So mm-hmm. that's been um, really inspirational in a lot of ways, um, just to hear fresh voices every month and to get to welcome new people to the stage. Um, mm-hmm. And then also some of the the people that I met in the program had stayed with me and had been readers of mine. Um, I'm not working with any of them at the moment, but a lot mm-hmm. of them stayed good friends and then first readers on a number of the stories in the collection. Right. Because um, I feel like one of the uh, common themes is you get this group of people that you can trust with your writing. Uh, did you have something like that before you uh, attended the MFA program? Like, what was your writing process like before? Sure, I um I actually have a magazine journalism background, so okay. I was um I was at GQ magazine, and um, I quit in order to come to the new school uh, because I thought it was going to be too rigorous to try to balance both at the same time. However, I stayed within the the Condé Nast uh, mothership um, the oh. entire time that I was in the program. So okay. I was, I mean, I think that's common of of most new school students. It's one of the advantages to having classes at night yeah. is that I had a full-time job the entire time. Um, uh, so I was still kind of working in magazines and going to school at night. So unfortunately, I wasn't 100% immersed in the program in the way uh-huh. that I imagine some students are um, right. who travel here from different states to come and, you know, go to the program. I'd already sort of had things set up. Um, but yeah, meeting those, meeting those people, the readers that you trust. I mean, that's what I say to so many people when they're asking me about MFA programs, should I go? What should I do? And mm-hmm. I just feel like community is instrumental. So wherever you can get that, you know, whether it's through an MFA program, whether it's online, whether it's right. just meeting, you know, great people who you trust who don't have any sort of toxic energy and are, are going to read read your work and give you critical and also helpful um, feedback. Right. Most important. Yeah, I mean, it's encouraging to hear that. Uh, I mean, I definitely feel like I, I made like lifelong readers, like friends here that, uh, you know, well, I, I haven't had a book out yet, but that, that brings us to, to your book. What... <laughs> What has it been like, uh, you know, have you been doing like a lot of touring? Uh, I imagine you've been doing a lot of reading from it and you're honestly tired of it. Um, yeah, well, so so the book is, it's a very small press. I'm the third title of a, of a new press out of Seattle. Okay. Um, so there's really, of course, you know, no no budget to send me anywhere. So everything, of course, okay. is, you know, on, on my dollar. I've been... DC. I've been. I'm going to Boston. I've been to Philadelphia. I've been to Baltimore. I'm doing a bunch of readings around New York mm-hmm. um, and in Brooklyn, and that's been great. And um, but you're right. Yeah, it's it's tiring to read read from the stories again and again and again. I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm eager to read from something else right. um, in the future. But it's been it's been really it's been really fun. It's great to check out other reading series across the country and see how they do it and. Um, that's always a thrill. Right. Yeah. I mean, of course, because you do host a reading series. Uh, what 
What kind of involvement do you have in other reading series? Like, because there's such a huge scene here. Uh, do you, you know, regularly attend other reading series? Like, what what role does the lit scene play in your life? Well, right now, or maybe earlier on when you were getting your own uh, involvement with the Sunday Salon. Sure. Um, well. I'm old <laughs> and and I have kids, so I, I'm i not able to go out as much as I, of course, would like to. You don't um, bring your kids to, <laughs> so, to read? No, I don't. I don't drag <laughs> them around um, <laughs> to all my readings. Um, I have one story that's fairly PG, and that's sort of the story they've heard. Um, they they just went to a reading that I did in Philadelphia, and they heard that one. But for oh, the most cool. part, I, I leave them at home, and then certainly when I go, I don't not able to go out as much as I'd like to. Um, that said, I do feel connected to a lot of the hosts of other reading series. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Panina Roth is fantastic. Yeah. Um, I'll be reading at her series in January. And um, Pen Parentis, which is a reading series devoted to writers who are also parents. Um, <laughs> they've been very kind <laughs> to me. Awesome. Um, I actually got my agent um, through that reading series. I happened she, there was an agent who was in the audience there oh. um, when I was reading. So it was really rather serendipitous. And I'm forever <laughs> grateful to Pen Parentis for that connection. <laughs> um, so yeah, certainly, I mean, Lit at Lark. I mean, there's a lot of lot of series. Um, we were talking about Mellow Pages. I've been there. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, um, I love... I love to hear as much new work as I can, as often as I can. That said, I'm not, I don't feel as plugged in as many people, um, you know, in the community around New York City. Oh, well, well, you're here today. I'm here. I'm here. It's great to be here. It's the first time I've been here in a long time. It's nice. (laughs) Yeah. Has, has much changed? Well, the, well, the, the exteriors, this building, this building, I think has gotten, had some work done, but I know the other buildings are brand new. That those those didn't oh, exist, yeah. right? Yeah. Back in back in the dark ages. Back in the day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm. I guess I am kind of curious about like what was it like when you were still attending here? Uh, what what kind of you know involvement did you have? Was it was there any sort of camaraderie in uh, you know? getting things started and, you know, going to reading series or that sort of thing? Um, I think there were a lot fewer reading series um, in New York back then, Uh Um, at least of the ones that I mentioned. I don't think any of them was any of those existed in Uh – I started the program in 2000, and um, it was kind of a wonky time to be in the program. Of course, we went through um, 9-11, which I think – I mean, it screwed up the entire country, the entire world, but I think it. we really felt it here in the program, too. Right. Um, and, um, yeah, so I didn't – I don't remember going to that many reading series. That said, I mean, there was a real need for it, which is why Nita started the series mm-hmm. in 2002 with a friend of ours, Caroline Berger. Um, but certainly, I you know, I was involved in the – I see on the on the shelf there, Lit, that journal. Oh, yeah. um, I was the criticism editor um, for a couple years of that journal, and that was, you know, a great experience and right. um, was able to interview a bunch of people. And I, I really enjoyed being a part of, of that scene, and we sponsored readings and, and right. all of that here at yeah. the new school. Cool. Yeah, so that's that's why it was possible for, for Luke and I to get a reading series started so easily. <laughs> After Were you guys the, involved in lit or uh, just no? Just I'm saying like the groundwork that yeah. was that was laid laid down. Yeah, I think there's a real I think there's a real need for it, and um, it's 
there's a lot, a lot of exciting voices that need to be heard. So yeah. um, kudos to you for, for starting oh, Dr. Well, Doctor. Thank you. I was, I was waiting for, for some kudos, finally. <laughs> uh, what, what's next? What, what are you up to? What's on tap for you? Um, well, I'm working on a novel. Okay, cool. Which is, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm a great abandoner. So my, my thesis from graduate school, from the new school, I, I abandoned it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, um, you know, I think was a good decision, but um, I am a great abandoner. So um, it is my, my natural impulse to take a story and then try to compress it into as few words as possible. Mm -hmm. So uh, this process right now, I'm working on a novel kind of runs counter to all of that. So right. I'm trying to resist that impulse constantly just to smash it all into <laughs> a 1500 word story and be done with it. Right. Um, that said, it's a really interesting process. I'm learning a lot about writing and I'm also learning a lot about myself and my own process. So yeah. hopefully I'll get some pages down. Hopefully this thing <laughs> will continue to grow and I won't abandon it. Yeah, that sounds great. Don't don't abandon it. <laughs> Thank you. Don't do it. Thank we're you. All, I appreciate all, the vote of confidence. <laughs> <laughs> we're all going to be expecting this novel very soon. <laughs> very slowly. I mean, I've been working. I work very, very slowly. So um, I like a little bit of fire under my ass. That's good, you know. But uh -huh. it's uh, this this book took me. I started it when my kids were little, and now my. My oldest is nine, so it's oh. been it's been a lot of years wow. in the making. I think it's fine to work slowly. It's, it ends up being better. So yeah, it's worth so. the wait. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. So we'll expect the novel in twenty years. Right there, you right? go. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, the kids will be no okay pressure. to read it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> By then, for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. Uh, I hope that was pretty painless. No, it was great, Sam. Thank okay. you so much. It was it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having <laughs> Thanks. me. All right. What a great start to things. I don't think I mentioned it on the top half here, but Sarah Lipman is a former uh, MFA graduate, and she was reading from her book, uh, her collection of stories, Doll Palace. And as you can tell, she has a, a ton of great insight just on New York and sort of being a good a good literary citizen. A uh, few quick plugs and then I'll get out of the way. We have uh, how many? Five more readers coming up here. Uh, 12th Street, which is the undergraduate journal here at the writing program. Um, they just released a new journal and also have been putting a lot more stuff online. Uh, most recently, I believe, they put up a kind of a goofy Q&A with Sam and I. Uh, we sat down and or sat down at our computers and emailed back and forth and kind of talked about sort of like the genesis of Dr. Doctor, if you're interested, and uh, just kind of why we did that. In short, you know, the, the MFA program was ending and we wanted to continue to meet people and build community and just have like a, a space for people to, to meet up and then also just like, you know, talk about writing and hear hear good writing so anyway you can check that out they are online at 12thstreetonline.com and it's the numbers you know one two th street online.com next up we have Lori lynn turner reading a piece of nonfiction, followed by gregory collins reading some poems thanks for listening I became the legal guardian of my nephew Michael in 1992 when he was 14. 
For a short time, we lived with my boyfriend Carl and his son Roland, who is two years older than my nephew. What I'm going to read is an excerpt from my memoir, It's in the House. This section took place in the winter of 1994. Michael had just finished a stint in a group home, and we lived together, just the two of us. On my 16th birthday, I gave Michael a party. Roland came over before the celebration. I took a picture of them at the small table in the kitchen, dressed in a purple thistle-printed tablecloth, the boys dipping their hands into the bright bowls of chips and cookies. Balloons hung from bright streamers on the living room ceiling. I baked a German chocolate cake, Michael's favorite. Carl's cousin Cheryl, her husband Rob, and their two daughters, Amelia and Melissa, came over. When Michael and I were living with Carl and Roland, we spent most, holiday at, most holidays at Cheryl and Rob's house. After Carl and I split up, I remained close to his cousins. We are, and still are, family. It was a homecoming of sorts. The first birthday Michael had spent at home since he had moved from Alaska. His 14th birthday was spent in juvenile hall. On his 15th birthday, he moved into a group home. Now for his 16th birthday, he was home with me. I handed Michael his gift. It's way cool, he said, unwrapping the metal bust of Jimi Hendrix I bought at a music store. On my 17th birthday, a friend gave me a hit of purple haze acid. We got in her car. I sat up front. We drove around. A friend sat in the back seat, laughing and saying that someone, or s someone was going to get me. His taunting frightened me. We stopped at a gas station, and I saw Tony, a man I had met a year before and had a relationship with for several years. I got out of my friend's car and told Tony that I needed to get away from the people in the car. Tony tried mushrooms and acid a few times. Now he only drank beer and smoked pot. When we arrived at his place, we went to his bedroom. I pointed to the ceiling, laughing. Can't you see them? What do you see? Women dancing the can-can, kicking up fantastically colored skirts. He didn't see them. My brain was blissfully suspended in magenta, pink, orange, and purple. I thought back to my birthday trip as I decorated for Michael's 16th birthday. Escape into color. Michael was happy. I was happy. The house was happy. We weren't allowed this much happy, is anyone. Michael took the bust of Hendrix into his room and then came back out with some friends who had come over. We're going, he said. Don't be out too late, I said. That night, Michael didn't come home. The next night, the phone rang and the caller hung up. And the next night, the same thing. Michael, is that you? Don't hang up, I said to the dial tone. When I woke up most mornings and before I went to bed, I stood at the sewing machine table in my room, which I'd fashions, fashioned into an altar of responsibility. I wasn't praying to a god, but asking the air in my room, in our house, to keep us together. I made a collage of all my financial commitments. On a piece of paper, I taped the return address of the gas and electric company, the phone company, the landlord's name, the name of my counselor, and an image of food. All the bills and necessities I feared we'd lose if things got so out of control that we that all the bills and necessities I'd fear we'd lose if things got so out of control that I would lose my job. I couldn't pay the bills. We'd be evicted. Also on the altar, I'd place one of Michael's guitar picks, a picture of Hendrix, a picture of baby Michael in a high chair, and a photo of teenage Michael as he ready to rock climb, his fingers in a peace sign. That afternoon, the next afternoon, the next afternoon, I grabbed the picture of Hendrix off my alt altar and headed downtown. As I crossed the small bridge that I crossed many times, searching for Michael, I said out loud, I'm going to find him. First, I saw his hair. 
His long, thick hair, when washed, was shiny and beautiful, the hair I wanted as a teenager, unlike the thin, stringy, dull hair my mother called dishwater blonde. Michael and his hair were slouching around with several scruffy teenage boys, my boy a member of an unwashed, lost boy band, boys like these I often see, not living on the streets, but in plain view, boys in their twenties, zipped in dark sweatshirts, musty jeans, hair that smells. Michael, I shouted. He turned, and I almost screamed. A ghost had slipped under his skin. His sense of reality, I imagined, was shaped by no sleep, handfuls of sugary cereal or no cereal, only strong substances to expand his mind, to run from his mind. Remember your dream of playing guitar like Jimmy? I asked, holding up the picture of Hendrix. A bunch of twigs snapped in Michael's head. He turned to another boy and said, I have to get out of here. Michael and the band of boys walked away. Two weeks later, Christmas morning, I was in the kitchen making a cup of tea. Michael came through the front door. I wrapped my arms around him and released him long enough to secure every way in and out of our home. Don't worry, Aunt Lori, I'm not going again, Michael said. All this is what I wish I'd done and what I wish he'd said. The sting of missing Michael and the worry that he would leave again halted my arms, cautioned my heart. I moved toward a chair, sat down, put my cup on the table, and slowly Michael walked into the kitchen toward me. I asked him if he was hungry, and he told me that he had breakfast at a soup kitchen. I pictured Michael waiting his turn with the other hungry on a holiday, like every day of the year. How many were considered missing, or had been long forgotten? I pretended Michael's return was normal, as if he'd just gone to the store, and we were ready to carry on with the holiday. Do you want to open your presents, I asked. Michael smiled and said yes. We sat on the floor by the standing globe I had bought in a thrift shop in San Diego. Each year I decorated as our tree. I placed the gifts my mother had sent for Michael and the ones I bought him at the base of the globe. I don't recall what was in the packages that I gave to Michael. Probably he opened Hendrick's cassette tapes and books. I called my mom, thanked her for the gifts, and then handed the phone to Michael. He was silent as my mother spoke to him, and then he handed the phone to me. My mother said that she told Michael to be good for your Aunt Lori. Why did he need to be good for me? What he needed more was to care about enough about himself to tell me what was wrong, and then I would be a good aunt, I would take action, but it would be years before I found out what had happened to Michael when he was a child. After the conversation with his grandmother, Michael said that he needed to sleep. An hour later, he came out of his room complaining of a stomach ache. I made him a cup of peppermint tea. He drank some of it, then took a shower, and went back to his room, and then came back out and told me he had taken some drug. I thought it was probably speed cut with a nasty substance that took him rapidly higher and later slashed at his center. Once in the early 80s, after I snorted several lines of cocaine, my heart and brain irrationally beating a dictionary in my lap, I stayed up all night looking up words, writing them down, practicing them out loud, the words all mine, believing that I had written the big book of definitions, how smart, how original I was. My illusion of brilliance plummeted the next morning when I was in a car with a friend. As we rounded a curve on a freeway, I pictured myself jumping out of the car, the tire squishing my organs. I felt dead. I didn't chide Michael for taking whatever drug he had taken. He came to me for comfort. I handed him two combs forte, an herbal relaxant, and he went back to bed. When I checked in on him an hour later, he was asleep. Later, I heard a thump. I knocked on my nephew's door. Michael, I yelled, and then I went into his room. The window had been left open. He had jumped to the ground, which wasn't far, and then he had taken off running. I closed his window. A part of me climbed out the window and ran through the streets chasing him, but I never found him at night. I closed the window, leaving it unlocked. 
The next afternoon, I heard shuffling, and I opened Michael's bedroom door. He was crawling through the window and back into his bed. I could have yelled, cried, or done nothing. I kissed the top of Michael's head and pulled the comforter up to his neck. He sleepily smiled. And though he'd run away and lived on the streets, he was a child. I'd been both angry and disturbed by some things he'd done, yet I loved him that unconditional way that often doesn't make sense. Hours later, Michael woke up, ate dinner, and then went back to his room to play his guitar. The evening in the house settled. I woke suddenly at three in the morning and certain Michael was gone. He was, and so was his guitar, which he'd never taken before. I sat on Michael's bed, gazing at the posters of Slayer, Metallica, and Hendrix while papering his room. Michael's room of musician worship held promise. One day he'd be one of them. I stood in front of the Slayer poster and pleaded with a gang of four. Can't you help, Michael? They refused to speak. I turned to the full-size Hendrix posters and pictures clipped from a big book about Jimmy I brought Michael for his 14th birthday. Jimmy was alive, smiling, head back, guitar in hand, guitar on fire. Come on, Jimmy, help me, help Michael. Hendrix remained famously frozen, playing guitar with his teeth. The next day I came home after work and Michael's door was open. His guitar had returned without him. Later that night I heard the strumming of guitar strings without amplification. I rushed to Michael's room, flipped on the light switch, only to see the guitar plugged into the amp and the amp plugged in the headphones lying on the floor. My mind was playing tricks. Had the guitar been plugged into the amp, the window was now closed. Had I closed it? Had Michael climbed in the window and played guitar, then crawled back out the window? A few days later, I received a call from Michael's probation officer, informing me that he was back in juvenile hall. The following week, I arrived early for court. A guard unlocked a holding cell, holding Michael. The door closed behind. I sat on the bench next to Michael in the cement room, absent of warmth or things or a way out. He held his head in his hands. I held my head in my hands. He was crying. I was crying. The harsh gray that enclosed us wept, too. Michael pleaded, Aunt Lori, I want to come home. Please let me come home. I'll be good. Just give me another chance. I knew other parents who had pleaded with the court to let their kid come home, and sometimes the court agreed that it was in the best interest of the family to send the child home. If Michael would have come home, what would have been different? How could we have ever moved past the place we were both stuck in? I wanted to rock back and forth, travel beyond the holding cell, rock many lifetimes away from this horribly hopeless place. Michael, you can't come home. We can't live like this anymore, I said. There is nothing. There is absolutely nothing left to uncover on this earth. No bones, no words, no arrangement of cloth or color, no culture, no combination of flavors, no community, no settlement, no part of the body, no new way to eject a person from a car windshield, no fusion, no style, no way of getting from point A to B, no new silence. There are probably stars to discover, or black holes, or ways of killing, or jeopardy, or new coasts to come, or volcanoes to rise, or ways of treating panic with medicine, or treating fear with technology, or thinking of ways to say the things I'm not saying or thinking. There are a few things that will always be new. New babies to burp, to rattle, to shake. New eyes to wonder what's wrong, to signal ways out of despair or joy. There will always be the new morning next to you, without uncovering anything, but hoping one day that maybe that new coast will form just outside our bedroom door to drown out the nothing.
this heat. I feel it bearing down on me, so I'm going to run up the hill, find Jill, and pitch her into the well that we spit in. I'm going to weep. I'm going to split logs, split legs, split open. I'm going to pretend that these residential towers of energy-sucking exorbitance that surround me when I enter Penn Station through borrowed time in August from a train that's pulled in from all that I can remember of an oasis, that they will fall into the Hudson and that God has a plan. That plan has been fixed, finding its way into my soul, out of the world that is made for the developer, the UX professional, the General Assembly, the NASDAQ of 2045. I'm going to melt my credit cards into the eyes of a priest. I'm going to continue to borrow money from strangers, but I won't spend it. I'm going to drink all of the Ethan Allen paint I can find. I'm going to get breast implants and walk down 7th Avenue with ancient queens I dig up from Emotions Anonymous meetings in the West Village. I will never buy you that diamond ring. I will never disclose the secret of your locket. Sigourney Weaver on one side and the alien on the other. I will never remember not to buy expensive cheese before I head home. I will never remember Jill after today, who's dead in the well, in the summer, in this heat. The Daily Temperature I wake up small, I descend stairs, I step into fog on the platform and eliminate myself for others. A courtesy this time before the thwack of the rail switch is prized. A single passive moment for the day, a punctuation from the scurry and foul. Tunnel winds whip up great relief and transport me from the bourbon human composites shouting, satisfied with themselves, taking walks up the lip. Cheers. This is gray time before the panic takes hold, before I am poured out into the torrid sun burning with yelps, where I belly up to you, thinking safety from howls while Arlo and Steph or Mystic and Pain chat away the moment on the corner. You're a trip. Look at yourself. Look after yourself. Say this every night before you go to bed. I am the tallest tower in Indonesia. Though I am a marvel of modern engineering, I still need a crew to climb up my spire for cleaning. This is a uh, great big sky fall down now. At the edge of Cherrywood Cemetery, Inc., where the swallows swing low to dodge the updraft near the trash pit, we dance on the mausoleum. If it were Pasolini setting the scene, there would be a chalice filled with blood or excrement, but instead we wave a simple flag for Teresa and Kayla who have passed. A crane arm sweeping over our heads constitutes a threat. The cherubs kicked by our legs pout at the scene. They are neither old nor new. When we are bored by dawn, we travel to the top of the precipice just past the retainment pool that sank into the gravel last spring. A backhoe being towed down the ravine opposite is our only hint at death lingering. Bursts of holy black smoke camouflage the burnt bark branches. Upon descent, a landslide of coke cans and spent cartridges from the makeshift firing rage spill down, cutting off our path and wrists. Possession in Jordan, Minnesota. When I tinker with your insides, you squawk and you giggle and your colloquial charms are re-upped. You fetch, you catch, and you're still real, still a gorgeous mess of flesh. You're a businessman in the bathroom mirror. You're a barrier reef 
an echo, an atom splicer, and debutante. You let off spurts of steam and crazy person laughter. You spill liquor on the rug. You step on Christmas bulbs and yell mazel tov. You flicker in my stitched peripheral every night. Let's weigh ourselves down with uprooted rose bushes and rubbers. Let's buy a watch together. This is first August, first romance. Burst and blow, little fly, descend ship mountain into the fenced in, drawn to zapper, singed in light. Outside the perimeter, stalks stalk in circles. In silence, they shoot up their bounty along the fence, down the gray to the lake. Birchwood impregnated with sap, viscous oils trickle down their trunks, leaving sticky pools and pockets for fingers for prayers. A nest stirs, sore limbs spring wild, and me and Jesse scamper up out of the cave and into the awkward silence of new night. Well, thanks again to Lori Lynn Turner and Gregory Collins, both of whom were just so helpful. I know when I was there at the, at the school, and they're just so patient and, and understanding, kind of guiding all of us as we're freaking out, trying to get our theses bound and all that stuff um which yeah congratulations if you just turned in your thesis i know that's uh, i've been seeing on facebook and and beyond just sort of that weird kind of frantic moment where you realize oh now i have to i've finished but i have to get this thing bound uh yeah congratulations and best of luck with what's next we've got three more readers for you it's going to be dale peck followed by Sarah Weeks and Hetty Jones is going to be there at the end. And yeah, thanks again so much for listening uh, this school year. And if you you haven't listened, you can always subscribe. There's there's just shy of 40 episodes here at Audiograph. You can just roll over to iTunes, type in Audiograph, and it'll come up. And Dr. Doctor, which is released on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., is also on iTunes. You just go in and type in DR Doctor, and you'll see us there. We're on a brief hiatus, so there won't be a next, there won't be a new episode next week or the one after. Uh, but we'll be back on the 17th. Sam and I just kind of talking back and forth. He in Brooklyn, and I'm here in Nashville. And then the following week on May 24th, we're going to be talking to another new school alum, uh, Amy Kurswell, who is uh, just a, a fantastic writer and also an, a visual artist. She's going to be doing some new content for our website which is again is drdoctordrdoctor.com so you can check that out if you want Uh, i know sam and amy had a great conversation we're looking forward to sharing that with you thanks again and here is dale peck when i think back to the hothouse period between 1987 and 1996 which is to say the second half of the first half of the aids epidemic which is to say the years between the founding of act up and the sudden and almost wholly unanticipated success of protease inhibitors and combination therapy the conferences the demos the marches and parades the meetings in the gay and lesbian community services center in the great hall at cooper union and in apartments scattered around the east village and lower east side this last blurs the line into sex i see it through a scrim of despair and 
failure, the former understandable, the latter less so, given the profound changes so soon to come and the pivotal role ACT UP played in bringing them about. This disconnect has long puzzled me because, despite the global nature of the plague, despite 34 million HIV-positive people in the world and nearly 3 million new infections each year, not to mention almost 2 million deaths, we beat the epidemic here. In America, I mean, in New York, or at least in my circle of friends. People stopped dropping dead is what I mean, and many of the people who continue to die are victims of extenuating circumstances as much as HIV, of addiction and broken health care and an increasingly stratified educational system that's created a permanent and disempowered underclass. But still, we won. The AIDS wards are empty. The streets aren't lined with walking corpses. But even as I write that, I think of a pair of my friends named Alan Rivers and Byron Clayton, and the first time I tried to save someone by writing about him, about them in this case, or at least to save a piece of them in the event that the epidemic claimed their lives. They were one of those gay couples whose fraternal resemblance made a certain kind of homophobe especially uncomfortable. Both were pale and wiry with brown crew-cut hair, Alan 5'8", Byron 5'7", and both had pierced nipples as well. In the years before every block in the village sported a tattoo parlor and piercing shop, I think they did each other's. I saw Byron's one night when he changed his shirt for a Pink Panthers patrol and a light caught the silver rings, making them flash on his chest. Did they hurt, I'd asked him. Yes, was his terse reply. But didn't learn of Alan's until Byron told me how his lover's x-rays had been the talk of St. Vincent's. Doctors and nurses came from all over, pediatrics, geriatrics, OB-GYN, to see the two perfect circles that stood out clearly despite a backdrop of dark, fluid-filled lungs. At that point, it was just pneumonia, but by the following week, it was clearly pneumocystis carini. And yes, Byron told me, he had tested positive as well. They'd been tested together, but Alan's PCP diagnosis beat the lab by a week. To my mind, it was as though someone had whispered in Byron's ear, you have seven, eight years to live, and in Alan's, you have three. But the epidemic understood better than I that these numbers were means, that some people lived longer than this, others not so long. Which is to say, Alan was dead in a little over a year, Byron in two. Now, as I read over what little I managed to get down on paper 23 years ago, I see that the only aspects of Alan and Byron's lives I recorded were those the epidemic intersected, and as such my words feel like a testament to AIDS rather than to the people it affected, the lives it claimed. I understand why this happened, though it doesn't make me feel any better. Alan and Byron were the first people I knew to discover that they were HIV positive after I'd met them. We met in ACT UP and had only known each other six weeks before Alan was hospitalized, and for two of those weeks I didn't see him because he was tired, Byron told us. He was run down, he had a bad cold, we're not sure what's wrong, he's in the hospital, he has AIDS. Shortly before, during a midnight picnic, Alan, Byron, me, Jean-Claude, Alan had told us how beat he'd been lately, how he couldn't catch his breath after climbing a flight of stairs. You're 30, we told him, these things happen when you turn 30. Join a gym, increase your lung power, meet hot men. No one mentioned the A-word, including Alan, though we knew he was trying to tell us he thought he had it. We were all AIDS activists, but still we pushed it away because AIDS, like any disease, wears the faces of those it affects, and it was easier to fight, less emotional certainly, when the enemy wasn't human. This isn't the talk show message, of course. The producers of talk shows and human interest segments on the evening news believe that by putting a face on the ep epidemic, they rouse viewer sympathy, and they do, and that's the problem. HIV, or cancer, or a miscarriage, or a divorce, or a 
box office flop becomes a life lesson, the proverbial blessing in disguise, the window God opens when he closes a door, each bromide making HIV that much more benign until it starts, starts to seem not like something that should be avoided or resisted, but something that should practically be embraced, a distinction, a gift even, a badge of honor and a path to wisdom, V's Andrew Sullivan's declaration near the end of 1996, it allowed me to see things that I had never been able to see before. During the four or five year period when AIDS was the focus of my political and artistic life, and consequently my social and sexual life, I did my best to keep the disease and those that affected separate in my mind because I didn't want to fall into the trap of fighting for one person I knew, or even a hundred or a thousand people I knew, lest when those battles were won or lost, absit omen, I should make the mistake of thinking that the war itself had been won or lost, which, of course, is exactly what happened. Or maybe I just wanted to insulate myself from tragedy, from pain. In my life, these things happened to other people. My mother died shortly before my fourth birthday. My father's three subsequent miscarriages were full of heartache and turmoil. But I always understood it as his heartache and turmoil, and at some point over the course of my first two decades, came to conceive of myself as a bit player in someone else's misery. An Ishmael, a Marlowe, a Lockwood, a John Dowell from The Good Soldier. A witness whose fate is to be the medium of other people's tragedies, not recognizing until too late that the stories he's telling are also his own, or that being a witness is as much a life as being a hero or victim. This sense of myself only grew stronger when I moved to New York and joined ACT UP, and, after meeting several people my age who were HIV positive, realized that my health had been protected partly by geography. I lived in central Kansas until 1985, where HIV had yet to make deep inroads, but also by fear. Because of the ephemeral, to me, threat of HIV, and the more powerful palpable menace of homophobia. I didn't come out until I was 19, didn't lose my virginity until a year later in 1988, by which, t by which time the tenets of safe sex were well known and undoubtedly saved my life. Although there was a little luck involved too, by which I mean that I was so nervous the first time I got fucked that I didn't use a condom, didn't even think about using a condom, which scared the shit out of me. It would be the last time I had unprotected sex for 19 years until I got engaged in 2007. It seems to me I know more about fear than I do pain, I wrote in 1990, and I don't want to add Alan and Byron's pain to my fear. This statement strikes me as just as true in 2013 as it did 23 years ago, but what it's taken me all this time to realize is that much of their fear was a projection of my own. It was Byron who taught me to yell, act up, fight back, fried eggs, instead of act up, fight back, fight AIDS, to relieve the monotony of two or three hour chants at demos. You could shout it right in cops' faces, in reporters, they never heard the difference. His biggest gripe? That he and Alan didn't learn their status sooner. He could have died, Byron told me in the hospital. He could have been monitoring his T-cells. He could have been prophylaxing months ago. He could have died. The emphasis in his words was on tense, not meaning, as if the threat of death had been removed by mere knowledge that it existed. I would make the same rationalizations a year later, when I dated an HIV-positive man for the first time. But they weren't diluted, not anymore. I could drop dead tomorrow, Alan told me from his hospital bed, pentamidine dripping into his arm, but I feel myself getting better and I just can't think every second that I'm dying I'd go crazy. 
I remember hoping it would be that simple, that Alan and Byron would only think of their deaths when one of them got sick, and that I too would only think of their deaths when one of them got sick. I remember trying to create an elaborate metaphor to explain the difference between my knowledge and theirs, something to the effect that death embodied in the hospital was a land I only visited, clutching my green plastic visitor's card like a passport, but that they inhabited. But the truth was simpler. There were times when I woke sweating from the AIDS nightmare we all had in 1990 and knew it had only been a dream. And there were nights when they woke sweating and didn't know. They just didn't know. I remember this one time. Fuck. That's how you talk about dead people, isn't it? After the emotions have dulled and the specifics faded, after 23 years have gone by. I remember this one time, you say, knowing that at the time it hadn't been an experience or a memory, let alone a symbol. It had been life. Yours. Theirs. You store away the mnemonic thinking it will help you remember, and indeed it does. But the first thing it always brings to mind is itself, and as more and more time goes by, you have to work harder and harder to get to the truth that lies beyond the signpost. But even so, I remember this one time, spring 1990. Byron and I were bicycling down 22nd Street between 11th and 10th Avenues, which was then a block of derelict warehouses and garages, many shrouded in scaffolding that had itself fallen into disrepair. Alan was home, home from the hospital sleeping. Two fast revolutions and we coasted, standing on the pedals for 50 feet. Sweat dripped down my back, but not from exertion. Some unknown zoning consideration had decreed that traffic should run west to east on this single block, rather than than east to west as it did on the other even-numbered streets, which meant that cars couldn't continue on from the block of 22nd between 9th and 10th, leaving the block between 10th and 11th virtually devoid of vehicular traffic, and, at night, of pedestrians as well. Gay men had taken advantage of this desolation to transform the block into a cruising strip. Men lined the sidewalks alone in pairs, larger groups. Where sex was happening, it was usually just hand jobs, circle jerks. A couple of men knelt before their partners. One man, still sitting on his bicycle stared us down as we passed, seemingly ignorant of the man who stroked his penis. When Byron and I reached 10th Avenue, we kissed goodbye, waited for the light to change. He surprised me then. The worst thing about being positive, he said, is that in the last eight years I've only had unsafe sex three times. This floored me. There was, on the one hand, the idea that it only took three slips to catch him. There was, on the other, the idea that for the previous eight years Byron had known that a single unprotected encounter could leave him infected. I shook my head in silence. We parted. Having tested negative since I'd moved to New York, I never connected his actions to my own unsafe encounter. But Byron pulled me aside a few days later. I went back after you left, Dale, he told me. I told myself I was just going for a look, but there was his big old daddy and I couldn't help myself. He wanted me to go home with him, but I wanted it right there in the street. What did you do? I gave him the ultimate safe sex blowjob. What's that? I made him keep his pants on. Did he come? Did he come? How? And as he described it to me, a sly smile creeping across his face told me how he'd licked the man's pants until they were sopping. I felt a barrier between us similar to the cotton covering that daddy's crotch, because I realized that not only was Byron's tragedy not my tragedy, but neither was it my triumph. I was only listening in, looking on, empathizing perhaps, but not really understanding. And though I've never forgotten what he told me, as the years go by I find myself wondering more and more if the words I remember are still his, or if, by now, now, they belong only to me. Hi, my name is Sarah Weeks. I teach the second year workshop in the MFA Writing for Children concentration at the New School University. I'll be reading from my most recent novel, Honey, edited by David Levithan and published by Scholastic, 2015 winter. Chapter 3 Honey 
That's what started the whole thing. It's what awakened Melody Bishop in the middle of the night and what she was still thinking about the next morning when she got up. Maybe she had misheard, she told herself. After all, she had been half asleep. Or maybe she had dreamed it. But deep down, Melody knew she hadn't been dreaming and she was certain about what she had heard. Honey. It had been a week since her father had run into Nancy Montgomery at the grocery store. Her father had continued to behave strangely and deny there was anything unusual going on. As a result, Melody had kept her eyes and ears open, and eventually it had paid off. After making her bed and tucking her pajamas under the pillow, she got dressed and went downstairs. Her grandfather's oxygen tank was sitting in the hallway, the long, thin plastic tube coiled up on the floor beside it, hissing like a snake. Melody had completely forgotten that he was coming to stay for the weekend. She pushed open the screen door and stepped out onto the front porch. "'In case anyone's interested, I'm awake!' she hollered across the yard. The garage door was open, and the scuffed toes of her grandfather's leather slippers were sticking out. "'Be there in a sec!' Grandpa hollered back. "'I'm just looking for the hammer!' That's what Grandpa always said when he got caught smoking in the garage. Even after he'd been diagnosed with emphysema, he'd refused to give up his precious palmals. When he thought no one was paying attention, he would unhook himself from his oxygen tank and sneak out for a smoke. Melody went back inside, where she found a note on the kitchen table scribbled on the back of a yellow flyer announcing the grand opening of a new beauty salon in town. She ran her fingers through her short brown hair. She'd never set foot in a beauty salon. Her grandmother had always trimmed Melody's hair for her when she was little, and after Grandma had passed away... Melody had learned to do it herself, angling the mirror on the medicine cabinet door in order to be able to see the back of her head. Have a great weekend and take good care of Grandpa, her father had written in his familiar chicken scratch. In case of emergency, call this number. Melody sincerely hoped there wouldn't be any reason to call the number since it was impossible to tell her father's eights from his fours or his twos from his threes. He'd signed the note in his usual way, XO times infinity, Dad. Melody set the note aside and poured herself a glass of milk. There was a box of assorted doughnuts sitting on the table. She chose one, dusted with powdered sugar, broke it in half, and was just about to dip it in the milk when the screen door squeaked open and Melody heard her grandfather shuffle in. "'I'm in the kitchen,' she called out to him. A minute later, Melody's grandfather was wrapping his arms around her in a big bear hug. The oxygen tube was back in place under his nose, tethering him to the cylindrical tank, which sat on a little cart beside him. Melody held her breath as she returned her grandfather's hug. She loved him dearly, but hated the smell of the cigarette smoke that clung to his clothes and hair. "'Did you see the note from your father?' he asked. "'He should have been a doctor with that handwriting of his.' "'Do all doctors have bad handwriting?' Melody responded, dunking the tail end of her doughnut in the milk. "'Mine's got hairy arms,' said Grandpa. "'In case you don't know, that's a non-sequitur,' Melody told him. "'Hairy arms have nothing to do with handwriting. And give me a break, Grandpa. Do you really think I don't know that looking for the hammer is a euphemism for smoking out in the garage? Grandpa laughed and pinched her cheek. Somebody's full of beans this morning, he said. Any particular reason? As a matter of fact, there was. Have you noticed Dad's been acting kind of discombobulated lately? Melody asked. Henry's always been a little forgetful, even as a boy, but come to think of it, this morning when I got here, I noticed his socks didn't match, said Grandpa, rubbing his chin. That's nothing, Melody told him. Yesterday, I opened the freezer and found a copy of the Red Badge of Courage sitting on top of a box of frozen waffles. In the freezer? Dad tried to laugh it off, but he's been acting strange for weeks, staring off into space, whistling the same song, and he burns everything he cooks now, too. Oh, that reminds me. I made us a tuna noodle casserole for dinner, said Grandpa. 
Melody tried not to let her disappointment show. Her grandfather was a terrible cook. She'd been planning to ask if, he, if they could order a pizza for dinner. The phone rang, and Grandpa reached to answer it. It's Nick, he said, handing her the receiver a moment later. I'll give you two some privacy while I go out to the garage to look for... Ugh, who am I kidding? You're right. It is a euphemism. He started to leave, then paused and put a hand on Melody's shoulder. Don't worry about your dad, Melly, he said. He always gets this way at the end of the school year. Once he turns in his final grades, I'm sure he'll be back to his old self again. What Grandpa didn't understand was that Melody wasn't worried. She was excited. In fact, she was overjoyed. As she watched her grandfather head off to the garage, Melody thought back to the previous spring and the spring before that. It was true that her father tended to get a little distracted at the end of the school year, but this was different. For the past few weeks, she'd gotten the distinct impression he was hiding something from her. She was pretty sure now she knew what it was. When she heard a tinny, faraway voice calling her name, Melody realized she'd completely forgotten about Nick. "'Bishop!' he was shouting into the phone. "'Bishop, are you there?' "'I'm here,' said Melody, "'and you'll never guess what's happened. "'I'll give you a hint. "'It's about my dad.' Nick Wu and Melody Bishop had been best friends since they'd, they, since they'd been in daycare together. People sometimes tease them about being boyfriend and girlfriend, but it wasn't like that at all. "'Don't tell me you found another book in the freezer,' Nick said. "'No,' said Melody, "'but last night,' In the middle of the night, the phone rang and woke me up. I heard my dad talking to someone. Then when I asked who had called, he told me it was a wrong number. What's so strange about that, Nick asked. We get wrong numbers all the time at my house. This wasn't a wrong number, said Melody. My dad definitely knew who she was. She? How do you know it was a woman? Because right before my dad hung up, I heard him call her something. What was it? asked Nick. Honey. Nick gasped. No wonder your dad's been acting so strange, he said. You know what this means, don't you? Melody knew. Even though he'd never said it, Melody could tell her father's heart had been broken when her mother passed away. For years, Melody had been making the same wish on every birthday candle, eyelash, wishbone, and shooting star that came her way. And now it had finally come true. My dad's got a girlfriend, she said. Who is she? asked Nick. That's what Melody wanted to know, too. This story is called Variation and Fugue on the Six Degrees of Separation, and it's from a collection that's as yet not published as a collection uh, called Race Tracks. And I think it was written about eight, maybe 1995, 96, something like that. It was only after her death that I linked Jackie to Anne. Before that, in fact, as it turned out the very week Jackie died, I'd been trying to connect the two of them, though I had no real idea how. They'd never met and didn't live in the same city. I doubt their paths crossed even once. It was like weaving a tail with no shuttle to throw. In determining my purpose here, I'd say that in general I like to present heroines, lest they vanish unsung, simple as that. In this instance, the theme might have been courage and control, although I seldom think in abstractions, and anyway, that didn't seem to be all of it. The week Jackie died, Anne and her husband, Paul, had come to the city to stay a long weekend with me while visiting relatives. Paul, not Anne, his second wife, was an old friend. Within the last few years, he and I had renewed our acquaintance after a long hiatus, and I had offered my couch if ever it were needed. When he called and asked, I already knew he was ill, 
and was happy I'd get to see him. I'd left keys for them because I was to be out of town when they arrived, and so they were here when I returned, lounging on the couch, and I was relieved to see that Paul, though thin, was his usual scruffy, mordant self. Anne had aged but remained the beautiful woman she'd been. Paul's first wife was a beauty, too, a much sought-after dancer, someone I'd been close to during their marriage at a time when it seemed we were all in each other's arms. Back then, I could only deplore Paul's defection to Anne, who, years younger, had been even more of a trophy. But they had lasted. I've never been anyone's second wife, so it was hard to imagine how she felt here, competing with her husband's past. I didn't know her well enough to ask her. But I liked Anne, and was especially drawn to her now that I was finally over the long-ago business with Paul. Irrelevant at this point. The man was dying. It was a sweet, embraceable Indian summer weekend. I opened all the windows and the door to the roof, and the city I'd just shut out blew back in. And Paul and I didn't spend a lot of time together. I didn't probe about his illness, feeling satisfied with whatever was volunteered. Besides, he appeared energetic enough and was able to climb my steep stairs. It was Anne, I discovered, for whom I felt the most anguish. On the phone, making arrangements, precise with times and places, she had it all under control. Because she was quite a bit taller than I, our casual embraces had always put me in the inferior position, though I was so aware now not only of being her elder, but of her need for one. Then, at one point, taking advantage of the weather to hang out a wash, I found her sitting on the roof, absently holding a cigarette with a long ash. She had her knees to her chin, head resting on them, her graying hair frizzed about. She looked up at me and smiled around the sadness in her eyes. And feeling a rush of sympathy, I set down my basket and leaned over to hug her. What becomes of a woman who lives her youth and middle age in the presence of an older man? All the rest of the day, I thought about her. I looked for a hundred answers in that figure on the roof. The morning they were to leave, I was seated with Anne at the kitchen table when Paul walked past us, all at once not only thin but drawn and ill. My heart sank. Anne stood abruptly and went into the next room. I could hear her blowing her nose. But then, returning right away, she went straight to the stove to reheat the coffee. Instinctively, I rose to her, and this time she did lean some of her weight on me as I whispered that it was okay to cry. But you can't cry all the time, was her answer, and I knew she knew something I didn't. She withdrew, looking at me defiantly, her coal-rimmed eyes full of tears that she then seemed to drain into herself rather than let go, as if, along with knowing she couldn't cry all the time, She'd acquired an extraordinary physical skill, something I hadn't even imagined possible. If that had been all, I might never have continued my quest to get from Anne to Jackie, never drawn the race card, never tried to show how, 
by six degrees from white to black, Anne and Jackie are not separated, but connected. Which definitions are, of course, just two ways to see the same space. But the story, like most, isn't simple. Later that morning, Anne, packing, offered me a joint given to her the previous evening by friends. I don't want to take it on the plane, she said. At first I protested, but she pressed it on me. Not only didn't she want it, she wanted to give it. And so, of course, I accepted. It's potent, she said gravely. Too much, and you'll get paranoid. When I did get around to it, and it was all that she'd warned, I remembered her at the stove that morning, refusing to cry. I imagined the paranoia she'd want to avoid, but then, because I was high for another reason, I forgot all about her. The thing about forgetting stuff like this is the way it comes back, in layers, as if filed in a place where only the feelings go to do what they do. A couple of days later, again thinking about Anne, I began to see her parallel with Jackie. I didn't yet know that Jackie was dead. A few years before all this, Frank, Jackie's son, had been convicted of selling pot and sent upstate. When Jackie asked, I agreed to drive her there for a visit. I'd known this family for many years, off and on. Frank had gone to school with my middle daughter. Although Jackie hadn't always been an able mother, and I had several times found Frank on the street and taken him in, she had always arrived soon enough to get him. No explanations, that was the way it was. Her husband, also a pot dealer, was in prison for much of that time, and I knew she was struggling. Like Anne, Jackie was beautiful. Unlike Anne, her beauty had never protected her. We'd been traveling home from that upstate visit to Frank when the incident occurred that I kept mulling over. Still far from the city, we were on a road with no rest stops when Jackie said she had to pee. Traffic was heavy the next exit miles away. We drove on a while and never saw a turnoff. Finally, I offered just to stop on the shoulder so she could crouch beside the car. But Jackie had a better plan. I'll just piss in this can, she said, holding up a Coke she'd just drained. You can do that? I was doing at least 60, and the hole in that can seemed awfully small. But Jackie was laughing and already pulling down her pants and somehow pulling her shirt partway over herself, which was just when I found I had to pass a truck, one of those unavoidable driving situations. I remember my apology, the truck driver's face, the smell of urine, and then fresh air from the open window. Without spilling a drop, Jackie got her clothes in order and held the can until we came to a place to ditch it. All during that week after Anne's departure, alongside her retracted tears, I considered this feat of Jackie's. Yes, but, so. I was trying hard to scratch the idea when I came home to find a message from Frank that his mother had died. Everything blurred. My thoughts were confused and compounded. Now there was an obvious, unexpected, and painful connection. Death. She was a trooper, a real trooper, Frank said when we spoke. 
and I had to agree. That time on the highway wasn't the last I'd seen of her cheerful, demonstrative self. A year later, she'd thrown a party to welcome him home from prison. And I remembered thinking about it again, the feel of that undertow in the room, the river of trouble still running. The following week, Frank appeared on my doorstep, bringing him with him a program from Jackie's funeral, which I'd regrettably had to miss. The cover photo showed her laughing, hitting the camera head on, alive and engaged, curvy and slim as she had always been. I found it hard to believe I'd never see her again. We marveled at her, Frank and I, and before he left, he later joined on me, so I figured he was still in the family business. That night, I woke suddenly into loud bursts of sound. There's a public phone right outside, and a woman was sobbing into it between words I couldn't hear since the weather had turned cold and I'd closed all the windows again. It was about 3 a.m., and she was giving it all she had, and her continued pleas into my dreaming mind saw Anne and Jackie, the troopers. When I finally got to Frank's joint, enough time had passed for me to understand that I'd failed in my task. In the bitterness of our politics, where things count, the stories of Anne and Jackie still show separation. Six degrees, and it's easy to see who plays and who pays, the way some of us get high and others get busted. But as I said, it's not that simple. And I've been trying ever since to find a way back to my original intent. It's too late, it's true, for Anne and Jackie to meet, but this doesn't preclude their coming together here. But where do I start? What are the facts? Maybe what I've shown is all I can claim, that controlling your tears and controlling your piss are the same, and that women like these two are black and white and capable of remarkable acts. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Congratulations if you you made it all the way through that. I think that's probably the longest episode to date, uh, but well worth it. You know, like I said, I just wanted to get this all out there before before the school year ended. Um, please do subscribe to either this, to Audiograph, or to Dr. Doctor via iTunes. And it's always very helpful with these, these podcasts if you comment and rate them highly. It just kind of moves them up in the ratings. Thanks again to the New School and, you know, just for giving me a shot with this project. I do, do hope it goes far into the future. And, yeah. Been, it's been an encouraging time, I think, especially this year to, to see a lot of like even just other new school alum come through and read sort of a testament to the fact that projects do come to completion and books do come out. Um, so yeah, hope, hope you have a, a great and productive summer. Thanks so much for listening. Hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. <laughs>